This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. Okay. So Matthew chapter 22 is obviously back toward the end. And I'm going to just start, we're going to start towards the beginning and work our way through. Now, in the book of Matthew, uh, some of the, the first part of the, of the book is just telling the story of Jesus, how he was born, the famous Magi, all that. And so Jesus doesn't really get to teaching and preaching until chapter 5. And that's where we start to see some of the very first questions of Jesus. And he starts out guns blazing. He really does. So Matthew chapter 5, and this is verse 46, if you want to turn there and follow me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Oh man, there's the taxes again. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now this isn't, I'll give a little bit of context here. This is in the context where he just got done saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. So now we've got some context. It's like, that question comes out hard, right? Like, if you just love those who love you, what are you doing that's different than anybody? That's not difficult to do. Like, everybody just, we kind of stay close-knit in our families, or one of the big topics of today is talk, talking about racism, right? And there, this was an era where the Jewish people only loved other Jewish people, and everybody else was considered a barbarian. And so one of the ways to undermine racism or any other stereotype, we could say, love those who love you. We could, we've got the gender barrier, we've got the race barrier, we've got all of these, these different topics. If we're going to undermine that, then we've got to understand what Jesus said. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is the opposite. Our reaction is usually to want to defend ourselves. Right? We, we'll say something about our Second Amendment rights or something like that. Like, what does it look like to actually love someone who's hating on you and persecuting you? Why do we always feel the need to defend ourselves? And why do we only love those in our bubble? Those who are close to us. Well, everybody does that. So what's going to set Christians apart? Jesus is right off the bat. He's like, what's going to set people who follow me apart? What's going to make them different? They're going to love their enemies. They're going to love people who even mistreat them sometimes. That's difficult. That's not fun. But that's what's going to overcome these barriers. That's what's going to tear down walls of racism and sexism. That's what's going to tear down these political boundaries that side us as red and blue. Loving people that we deem or that, that treat us like enemies. And this is what makes us sons and daughters of God in heaven. This is a hard teaching. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. If you love those who love you, how are you different than the so-called sinners? 
right? Like, what's going to set us apart? In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that they will know that we're his disciples, what? By our love. But then we look out at the church today, and is the church known for love? Or do most people think of the church, and they're like, well, it's a bunch of people who hate. They're bigots, right? And we get that, that accusation all the time. And Jesus is, he's like, what, what reward are you going to get? How are you expecting to be set apart? If you're just going to love those who love you, then we're just living in a bubble. People who think like us, people who talk like us. And we're cutting ourselves off from reaching other people. And it's interesting because then he ends it with this line after he says, don't even the pagans do that? Don't even the sinners do that? Verse 48, he says, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then what's instantly going through your brain? How can I do that? <laughs> right? Like, as soon as I read be perfect, I'm like, okay, I might as well, why, why do I try? Right? Like, as soon as we think of perfection, we're thinking of moral and ethical perfection. We're thinking of no more sin. Right? And so then we take, the, we read this as like some kind of accusation. Like, well, I can't, I can't even do that. So what, what, like, how can you put such a lofty expectation on me? But this word perfect, actually, it doesn't mean the way we think of perfect in our modern ear. Like, we think of a perfect score on a test, right? But the perfect here means mature or complete. As in, stop acting like a child. Mature or complete. So this is a different type of what we would call perfection in the sense that this is more of an invitation to grow up. Pagans act like kids and they just only love others who love them. And as a mature adult, we could say, you're called to love people who even mistreat you, who persecute you, who tear you down. Therefore, be perfect or be complete. Be mature. Be grown up. This is what it looks like to be mature in Christ. It's to love others who mistreat you. Even when they're actively mistreating you. Because what happens? We want to defend ourselves. We don't like it. It doesn't feel good. We want to explain ourselves. We don't like being misunderstood. And Jesus is inviting us higher to a different standard, to a different call. And he's not calling us to an impossible standard. He knows that we've sinned, right? He knows that we're not perfect, but he's calling us to mature, to grow up. And in fact, it sounds like we could attain this kind of perfect. Like he's, he's saying, you can do this, right? He's not putting out this lofty goal that's unattainable for us. Maybe not in our own strength, right? It's not, I'm not trying to say, yeah, just buck up, <laughs> Right, you got to do this on your, be perfect, Jesus said it, so just do it. Like, we're talking about doing this by the power of Jesus, right? We're, do, we're doing this through the Holy Spirit. This isn't something in our own strength, but it's an invitation to be like the Father. And it says in this passage that the Father causes the Son to rise on the just and the unjust. And we sit there and like, well, how can a good God let an evildoer enjoy the same sunshine as me? You know what I mean? Like we get so self-righteous sometimes. And this is what it looks like. God is what we would call mature, complete, perfect. 
He looks out at the just and the unjust and he loves them the same. And that's a powerful concept to grab hold of. So, if you're asking yourself the question, which question are you asking? Do I just greet people? <laughs> Excuse me. Do I just greet people who are like me? Do I just love people who are like me? Am I taking the easy way? Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the Jewish people had become at this time. All right, next question. Chapter 6, verse 25. And we're just going to put a bunch of the questions together because he just goes on a little rampage here and tears us up with questions. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is your life not more important than food? And the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is a mouthful. This is one of the more famous sayings of Jesus again, right? But notice how, like, this was 2,000 years ago. Sometimes we kind of put this, like, idea on the ancients, like they didn't have the same problems and same troubles that we have. Like, they were in more survival mode than you. Like, you can drive out of here and in two minutes have a burger sitting in your lap. Right? Like, they didn't have the convenience. Like, when Jesus told them, don't worry about food, they had food to worry about. Like, we kind of don't. It's just, food's all around us. And yet, we still think about it and worry about it sometimes, don't we? How am I going to pay for this? How am I going to do that? How am I go- what am I going to eat? What should I wear? And we get so caught up in clothing. We get so caught up in food. And we're worrying about it. And we're thinking about it. And it's taking up so much of our headspace. And Jesus says, why are you worrying? Who, like, he's almost getting a little bit sarcastic. He's like, who of you by worrying can add an hour to your life? Like, man, that hits deep. I thought of this line, worry can't fix your past, it doesn't do anything for your future, and it steals 100% of your present. Worry cannot fix your past, it doesn't add a thing to your future, and it steals 100% of your present moment. But how much of the time do we sit there and worry and think about things that will never happen? We, we worry too much. And Jesus is telling us, you have a father in heaven. My little girls have a father 
they're not really worried about anything. Like every once in a while, <laughs> excuse me, every once in a while they're like, what are we going to eat? What are we going to have for lunch? Like they're not worried about it, they're just hungry. Like they have no question in their mind that I'm going to feed them. It doesn't even occur to them that I wouldn't feed them. I joked one time that we were going to fast, and then they were just like, well, what's fasting? <laughs> I was like, no, we're not going to have lunch today. We're just going to fast. What's a fast? <laughs> it doesn't sound good. <laughs> but Jesus is, call- Jesus is speaking to his people. He's speaking to the Jewish people, and he's asking them, why do you worry so much? Why are you fretting so much about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear? It's not going to add anything to your life. It's not going to do you any good. Trust your Father. And I do feel like I need to say this. There's a difference between planning and worrying. Worrying is a mental state that causes no action. Planning is useful and is an action activity. So you can make plans for your future... You can set aside money, you can budget so that you have food for next week, right? If you, don't, if you go spend it all and you don't have any money for next week, that's not good planning, right? And it's not worrying to set aside money so you can have food next week, right? There's a difference between planning and worrying. But a lot of times we kind of just blend the two and we call our worry planning and it's not doing us any good. Right? So, planning is a good thing. There's tons of scriptures that talk about being a good steward, about planning ahead, about thinking ahead, right? But, like, Jesus here isn't talking about planning. He's talking about worry. And that's a different mental state. And worry only steals from you. It only undermines your future. So, as Jesus said, don't worry. Do not worry. Trust your Father. Next question. Chapter 7. Verse 4. Or actually verse 3. Here's another famous one about hypocrisy. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? <laughs> this one's always such a funny one. Like, we're trying to imagine somebody with a like a plank in our eye. <laughs> right? Like this huge two by four is just like sitting in someone's eye socket. Like, hey, how you how you feeling? Can you see anything? <laughs> you know, like it's just this absurd, absurd thing, absurd situation. But often, it's inverted, right? We look at someone else at the, at the speck, and we blow it out of proportion, and we make it a plank. And we feel like we've got to deal, and they're so wrong, they're so bad, they're so terrible, every, like, i got to fix them. But the problem is, what we see in them is often something reflecting in our own lives, in our own heart, Right? And Jesus is saying, how can, you, how can you even attempt to take the speck out of somebody else's eye when you've got a plank in your own? You've got the whole dang tree, <laughs> you know? And we, we're so, we get so focused on what other people are doing wrong or how other people have offended us. 
And we want to fix them. We want to fix other people while ignoring our own issue. And Jesus here is saying, your issue is actually much more glaring. And here you are wanting to fix someone else's problem. Right? Like this is where personal responsibility comes in. And like, we sit around and we talk about all the government problems and we talk about all the issues in America and, you know, in about 10 minutes or so, I can pretty much, I can fix America. Like, if people would just do what I said, things would be better. But it's not that easy, is it? But that's kind of how we look at things. Or we look at another individual and we see how they messed up. And we're, if they would just listen to me, I could fix them. And God's up there in heaven looking down at our lives. And he's like, do you see your own issue, <laughs> right? Like we ignore our own because we want, to fix, we want to fix other people. And we use that fixing of other people to help us ignore ourselves, help us ignore our problems, to cover it up. And Jesus here is saying, stop being so hypocritical. Stop ignoring the plank in your own eye. You're not going to help your brother or sister with the speck in theirs. Got to look at yourself. Another one in chapter 7. This is one of those scary questions, especially because he kind of answers it himself. Chapter 7, verse 22. He said, Many will say to me on that day, He's talking about the judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? So there's the question, right? He's asking the question that some of us are asking. Like, hey, we drove out demons. We did miracles in your name. And his response is, I will tell them plainly, verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me. You evildoers. Wait, what? Like, how can you do miracles in the name of Jesus? How can you drive out demons in the name of Jesus? And this is where Jesus is talking about the connection to him, the relationship to him. His name is so powerful, you can drive out a demon without the connection to him. You might even see a healing. But if you don't have that personal relationship and maintain that connection with him, he's going to be like, I didn't know you. <laughs> you were going and doing things in my name, but you were doing them for yourself, for your own glory. You were not doing them because you knew me, because you were connected to me, right? I preached a sermon a few weeks back about remaining in the vine, being in Jesus in John chapter 15, right? We have to stay in Jesus. We have to be connected to him. And this is one of those scary passages because you look at your life and you're like, well, I've driven out demons or I've done miracles. And we all kind of say, like, I know I didn't really do it, right? Like, we know it wasn't us. But the question is, did you do it for your own glory? Did you do it because you needed to be seen, you needed to be heard, you wanted other people to look at you as spiritual? Or did you do it because you are so connected to Jesus and the heart of the Father that you wanted to see that person free? You wanted to see that person healed. You wanted to see that person whole. And your heart was broken, just like the heart of the Father, over the pain that that person was suffering.
And this is one of those questions, <coughs> excuse me, we have to ask ourselves. Do we know him? And better yet, does he know us? Does he know you? Have you let your guard down to the Lord? And really let him know you? Or do you have those walls up, those protections up? Because most of us, when we've been hurt by other people, we learn to put up walls and protect ourselves so we don't get hurt again. And then unknowingly, unwittingly, we do that same thing to the Father. And we've got walls up to our Creator, the one who loves us more than anything, the one who made us and can love us perfectly. And we've got walls up and barriers up. We're not sure we can trust Him. And Jesus here is saying that there's going to be some who become so deceived in doing things for Jesus, they don't stay connected to Jesus. And therefore, he doesn't know them. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 26. We've got another question. I'm letting you guys turn there if you need to. He says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Now, this one's going to make more sense. We're going to like read through the passage a little bit and get some context to it. But as you read the passage, I want you to think to yourself, like, why do I get so afraid? Why do I get so fearful? Some people deal with fear more than others. So this obviously isn't a blanket statement, like all of you in here are just scared, spitless, and shivering in your boots, right? This is... This is a different type of fear, so let's read it. Chapter 8, verse 23. So Jesus got in a boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Talk about a peaceful dude. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, this is a story I've known since my childhood, and I've already taught you know, my daughters. We've read it umpteen times, talking about the wind and the waves and the storm. But notice the contrast that Matthew gives us between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples are scared out of their minds. Lord, save us, save us. We're going to drown. And he's just asleep. Any of you ever felt like that? Like this big stormy seasons in your life? And you feel like Jesus is asleep at the wheel? Like, hey, I gave you the wheel. Like, you know, the song, Jesus, take the wheel. Like, you're like, I gave you the wheel. Come on, take over, drive, do something, save me. And then it's like, He's just sleeping. Like you feel like you woke him up or he's just not paying any attention to your life at all. And then he gets up and he kind of chides you a little bit. He's like, oh, you of little faith. Like would that, like if I'm in a storm and I feel like, I, like, and, and you got to remember too, we kind of give these disciples a difficult time. You know, we're like, man, these guys were like scaredy cats or something. But these guys were sailors. Like they were fishermen. It's not like they'd never been in a storm before, right? This wasn't the first storm they'd been in or seen. 
So there's a different, like these guys are what you would call like hardened sailors, hardened fishermen. They'd been in a boat before. Like if you and I go out on a lake and we're just in a sailboat with no motor by ourselves and a storm comes up, we're all going to be a little scared because none of us are sailors, right? But like these guys are actual sailors who know the seas and they know when they're about to get wrecked. They know they, this storm is going to sink our boat. My guess is they were already taking on water. And then you got Jesus getting up and he's like, oh, you of little faith. Like if I said that to you in the boat and we're out on Lake Michigan and I was just like, oh, you, you'd be like, you're going to pastor me right now? Seriously? Like you're going to be all spiritual and stuff? This is, we're in a physical boat, pastor. Like what is going on with you? You know what I mean? Like, think of what would be going through your head. Put yourself in the situation and like, this was actually scary for them. And then Jesus gets up and he says, you of little faith? Like, well, we are in a boat and I've had friends drown before, so... (laughs) You know, like, what's going through their heads? What's going through Jesus' head? And he's reminding, why is he saying, oh, you of little faith? Why is he so peaceful that he can sleep? He's got absolute trust in the Father. I went whitewater rafting a couple weeks ago, and several people wanted to specifically be in my boat because I was the pastor. (laughs) And they figured they'd be safer. So, like, it was a little bit like that. Like, like, this is how we've got to remember our lives. Like, Jesus is in your boat. Jesus is in your boat. And time, there's times when you think the storm is going to take you down, it's going to take you out. But as long as he's in your boat, as long as you're connected to him, that thing's not going down. It wasn't his time to die. Right? He knew that his time to die was at the cross. So he's not worried about being in a boat. No matter how bad the storm gets, he's not worried. And you need to remember, you have invited Jesus into your life. You're connected to him. And even when it seems like he's sleeping, he's in your boat. He's in your corner. This ship is not going down. Not with him in it. And then we understand that lot. Oh, you have little faith. Why? Because you just need a reminder. He's in your boat. He's in your boat. He's not going down. He's not going anywhere. He hasn't left you. He's so peacefully sleeping. Chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he said, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? What did you go out to see? And I like this question. It's interesting because he's talking about John. But I think it's one of those introspective questions. Like, why are you here? Why did you show up? Did you show up for a pastor? Did you show up for a special message? Did you... 
tune into YouTube because of the special speaker? Is this kind of a celebrity culture type thing where you're just falling in line with everybody else? Like, what did you go out to see? What did you expect? Did he meet your expectations? Is that what you wanted? Did you need a song and dance to get you going? You know what I mean? Like, Jesus is questioning their, in, their intent, their motives. What did you go out to see? They went all the way out to the desert to see John the Baptist, this crazy dude eating locusts and honey, right? And he's in, he's where, it says he wore camel's hair. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad the suits and clothing today are upgraded for preachers, <laughs> you know, and the diet. You know, there's like this big push now to get people to eat crickets and stuff. I'm like, I'm not called to be John the Baptist. I'm just not. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, little aside there. But Jesus is asking his disciples, what did they expect to see out in the wilderness with John? And this is one of those questions, again, we're at, we need to ask ourselves, why are you here? Why did I show up? Am I showing up because I'm kind of caught up in some sort of celebrity culture or because I need to be greeted? What, what am I going to see? Am I expecting to see a prophet? Am I expecting to get a prophecy? Do I need someone to make, make me go, wow? Or am I showing up because God said to show up? Am I showing up because it's the right thing to do? Because the Lord is leading me? And it gets into our motives, our intent. And we live in a celebrity culture today. And they had a celebrity, like we kind of think, remember when I said earlier, like we think that they didn't have the same needs and thoughts that we have. They had a celebrity culture back then. And they'd get caught up in the famous people, the rich people. And Jesus is asking them, what were you expecting to see? And then he goes on just a few verses down. And he asks this question in verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? To what can I compare this generation? He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to others. We played a flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And it kind of seems cryptic. Like, I don't know. What, what does that mean, Jesus? <laughs> right? But he's actually quoting an Old Testament scripture. And in context, what he's saying is, what should I compare this generation to? You're like children with a child's mentality. You want them to, you want to control them. You want them to do what you want them to do. So we sang, we played the flute. How come we didn't dance? Do what we want. Give us what we want, right? We sang a dirge. We sang a mourning song, a funeral song. And you, nobody mourned. Nobody did anything. These kids want to be entertained. They want to control the people they're sitting in front of. And you look at our YouTube culture, our TikTok culture, our, and we kind of think that the person behind the screen is the one in control. But actually all they're doing is dancing for their fan. They're giving the fans what they want. They're giving the people what they want. And they're actually more caught up in it themselves than probably the people watching them. And they start to become who the crowds want them to be. And I guarantee you, these 16-year-olds, these 17-year-olds, they are so caught up in giving the fans what they want that they don't realize how much it's changing them. 
how much it's affecting their mindset. And they're just caught up in the fame. And Jesus says, this generation's like kids. That's kind of a deep question. To what shall I compare this generation? This grown generation of adults. And what does he say all the way back then? You're like kids. I don't know how many times I've heard people say in our modern time, we live, we live in an adolescent society. We've got a bunch of grown-up people with adolescent brains running around wanting to be entertained. And you know what? It's the same human condition. Jesus was dealing with it then. And the crowds were trying to control him. And he says, John came neither eating or drinking. And they said, he has a demon. Then the son of man, referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And they said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And he's, saying, he's pointing out, like, no matter what they did, they didn't please the crowds. It got to a point where the crowds said, no, nope, you're not doing what I want, John. Off with your head. It's not really a joke. It's actually what happened. And they treated Jesus similarly. So I think when, you, when Jesus asks the question, to what shall I compare this generation? We need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, are, are we just a part of this? Are we caught up in the celebrity culture? Are we like children trying to control the preacher, trying to control Jesus, make him into the image that we want him to be in? What are you going out to see? All right, am I moving too fast? Everybody following, tracking with me here? We're, we're blowing through these questions, so maybe you'll have to go listen to the sermon again later. Chapter 12, in verse 48. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And it's funny because in the context, he's, he's like speaking to a crowd and his mother and brothers showed up and they're stood out. They're wanting to speak to him. In verse 47, someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. Can you imagine this? Like, I'm trying to imagine this crowded, dusty street this house just jam-packed with people, so much so that his own mother and brothers can't get in to speak to him. They're trapped outside. And then someone gets the message, like, remember, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, like the Catholic saint person, standing outside, and Jesus is like, meh, who's my mother? You know what I mean? Like, it's be a little off-putting and rude, right? Like, if you're Mary, you're like a little, like, I thought you were, you're supposed to be nice to me. You're the son of God, like... Come on, treat your mother with a little respect, right? And Jesus is just like, who's my mother and brothers? And he points to his disciples. And this is one of those things where it's kind of a reiteration of family and who, the true, who your true family is. He's like, sometimes you were so caught up in pleasing mom and dad when they're actually kind of against you or they're trying to hold you back and we don't, we don't realize. And so we're paying more attention to our biological family and we're ignoring our faith family. And it's to our own detriment. Now, I'm not saying, like, 
go tell your mom off or something like that, right? Love your mother, respect your mother, right? Jesus can get away with this. You're not him. Uh, <laughs> but I'm supposed to be like him. No. Uh, Jesus here is doing a specific teaching, right? He's not telling you to treat your mother and brothers with disrespect or dishonor them or not value them, right? Love them, treat them with honor and respect. But in the context, he's teaching something to his disciples and telling them, you're my family now. You're the ones full of faith. The ones who do the will of the Father, you're the ones I feel most connected to now. You're my new family. And it's difficult, like, in this room, like, we're still, we've been going at this a little over a year, but, like, we're still becoming family, you could say, right? Like, we're still getting used to being around each other. There's still awkward moments sometimes. There's still, like, we don't know each other super well, but God is forming us and making us into a family, and that's actually his goal. He said, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, my mother. That's the goal. So when we meet here together as a body, we're trying to become a family. We're not just this loosely connected group of people that all show up at, at the building on Sunday, right? Like we want to actually create an environment where we feel like family, where we get close to each other, where we let walls down. And we let each other into our lives. And you need that more than you realize. Chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 51. Jesus asked, Have you understood all these things? Have you understood all these things? Now, chapter 13 is really an awesome chapter because it's just chock full of different short pointed parables. So if you go back and read it, there's the parable of the sower. There's the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed and yeast. Jesus explains the parable of the weeds. There's the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, the parable of the net. There's all of these different parables. And then he gets to the end and he asks his disciples, have you understood these things? Now, when you go back and you read these parables, it almost just sounds like he's telling these like proverbs or little stories. And the reason he stops and asks, have you understood, is because sometimes in a story, you just get caught up in the story. You don't realize like there's a moral to the story. You know, like I'll turn uh, cartoons on for my kids sometimes or like some educational show. And there's a story about a bunny rabbit and, what, you know, whatever different animal and they talk and stuff like that. And like my girls are at an age where they don't realize that there's often a moral to the story. Like they're just happy to see a bunny dancing on the screen, right? But as grown adults who are being invited into that deeper relationship with Jesus, like we need to understand that stories aren't just stories. They have a deeper meaning. They have something for us. And so Jesus is telling those stories, those parables to his disciples. And then he asks them, have you understood these things? And sometimes in our Christian walk, we get so caught up in this idea that you have to read three chapters a day or you have to pray a certain amount of time. And Jesus' concern wasn't, he didn't ask his disciples, did you read your Bible today? He didn't ask his disciples at this moment how long they had prayed. He asks them if they understood what he said. And so I just, as your pastor, I want to invite you 
to follow that question of Jesus, like, have you understood what he's saying? And there's going to be different stories that you read. And you might read, go back and read Matthew chapter 13. You might read another parable another time. But like, what if, what if your prayer, prayer and Bible reading time tomorrow, instead of just blazing through your three chapters or five chapters or whatever your daily reading is, what if you sat down and you read one parable and you read that one parable five or six times until you got it? Until you feel like you could say, I understand this. I understand what Jesus is trying to speak to me. And you ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, reveal what this is saying to me. Make this a rhema word. Make this come alive. Because so much of the time we just get caught up in the reading or the going through the motion and you're just trying to see that next chapter sign. Like, all right, I can be done. Or I need to go to work now. Or I need to do this. Or I need, and like, the, the whole point of reading these things is to grab an understanding of the kingdom of God or the nature of the, your relationship with the Father or your connection to the Son. And he's trying to take us deeper. And so he's asking us the question, have you understood these things? And it's okay to answer, nope. <laughs> nope, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. The disciples did that several times. There's another question. The, the next question uh, it's not the next question we're going to read, but a couple questions from now. I'll just skip ahead. In Matthew 15, 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and he's like, are you still so dull? <laughs> like, oh man, that'd feel good. Like Jesus looking at you and being like, are you, are you that dense? Like, come on, Peter. <laughs> you know? But like sometimes we have this blockage up and we don't realize that we're not getting what's right in front of us. And so we're reading it and we're reading it, but we're reading it in a, with a dull mindset. And Jesus wants us to read to understand. And you kind of pursue and you get past the superficial reading. You get past the shallowness of it. And you understand, like, there's something deeper here for me. And so Jesus tells these stories, but then he asks his disciples, have you understood these things? And I want you to be willing to be honest with yourself. This isn't a point where you have to like bluster and pretend you're so smart or yeah, I know it all. Or Like as your pastor, I've been reading these scriptures all my life and I still try to pause and reflect, do I understand this? Do I have an understanding of this? I often come to the scriptures and I, and I think I already know. That's one, of the, that's one of the downsides of having a long, like you've had a long relationship with the Bible. And so you approach it from a perspective like you already know. And what if God today, this week, wants to show you something new? And you can't hear it. You're so dull. Why? Because you think you already know the answer. Yep, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, right? Like, I, I talked to a guy one time, and he was like, yeah, I like, to go to, I like to go to church just about every Sunday, but I don't really go on Easter because I already know the story. And it's so crowded anyway, so. And he just kind of trailed off, and I was like, wait, what? Like, this is the best part of the story. This is the climax of the story. This is the scene everybody loves, and you're not showing up because you've heard it once or twice before? But we do that with other scriptures too, don't we? We read it like we already know what it's about. What if, what if there's a, a new revelation for you from the story of David and Goliath? Like everybody knows that one. 
Right? Everybody's heard the story of, the da- of David and Goliath. But like, when was the last time you went and actually read that full chapter or two, got some of the context, and tried to put yourself there in the story? And what if there's a new revelation for you to understand? You know what I mean? And so you go back and you've got to ask yourself this question of Jesus. Have you understood all these things? And we so badly want to answer, yes, yes, I understand. But be honest with yourself. Maybe you don't understand. Or maybe you previously understood and you need to get a fresh, new understanding. Both of those answers are okay. It's okay to say, no, I don't understand, Jesus. Show me. That's the best heart to have. That's a heart of curiosity and wonder. All right, so that's the question from chapter 13. Chapter 14. This is another one, a storm on the water. And this is the one where Peter gets out of the boat. And in the middle of the story, Jesus says, it says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand, chapter 14, verse 31, sorry. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, being Peter. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And this is kind of another, I already... I already talked about the storm and the waves and all that. But this is like a second time that it happened. And so like Peter saw the first time, I'm guessing, and he was like, well, Jesus is out there walking into this time. Like, well, I don't know. So he's like, if it's really you, Lord, because they, they all were thinking they were seeing a ghost or something. He's like, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come out to you. And the ghost was like, yeah, come out to me. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus invited him out. And said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he invites Peter out onto the water. And suddenly it says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. And this is what I want to point out in this situation. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, what what happened there? There's a moment where he's fixated on Jesus. And Jesus had told him, come out into the water, right? He just told him simply, come. So Peter got out of the boat and his focus is on Jesus. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. And then it says, what? When he saw the wind, he was afraid. This is kind of an insight into our own lives, right? When you get your eyes off of Jesus onto the storm, onto the wind, onto the waves, onto all the other things going around you, what's going to happen? You're going to get afraid. You get your eyes off of Jesus. The one who's going to keep you safe in the storm, the one who's going to keep you out there walking on the water, you've got to keep your eyes fixed on him. Jesus chides him a little bit and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, we see why he doubted. The reason he doubted is he got his eyes on the wind. His eyes got off of Jesus and onto the wind. How many of us kind of do those same things, right? The storm comes, feels like the waves are swamping over, like you feel overwhelmed. And what do you, it's hard not to look at the water after it splashes you and soaks you. And your eyes get off of Jesus in the moment because it's scary, it's overwhelming. And Jesus is saying, fix your eyes on me. Look at me. Why did you doubt? You of little faith. 
And it's funny because like I look at that passage and I'm like, little faith, this dude got out of the boat. Like who gets out of the boat in the middle of a storm? Like, yeah, I'm just going to like, it's not like in Minnesota, I walked on water all the time because it was frozen, right? Like everybody up there is walking on water in the middle of winter, right? But this is like, this is not that level of faith. See what I'm doing there? Like, it doesn't take that much faith to walk on frozen water. But Peter got out of the boat in the middle of a storm on regular water. I'd look at that and like, he, man, that's a pillar of faith. Like, this guy's got some audacity. And Jesus is saying, oh, you have little faith. Why? Because he took his eyes off. It's easy to take the first step until the waves come. Right? You've got to take the next step despite the waves and fight to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Chapter 15, verse 3. Uh, Actually, we'll give this one some context. So starting in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now remember, this is interesting because in our day we're like, you should definitely wash your hands before you eat, <laughs> right? So we're just, like, we're all kind of modern germaphobes and like throwing out like we want the uh, antibiotic, or is it? Yeah, you know, antibacterial, right? We want the antibacterial soap, and we're like all afraid of germs and stuff. And like in their day, they had no concept of germs. Okay, what the reason they washed their hands is because the like the tradition of the elders said to wash your hands at certain times. It was actually a Jewish thing. Not everybody would wash their hands before they ate at this time. And then Jesus replies and says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? This is one of those things where we've got layers and layers and decades and centuries of traditions that we follow in American Christianity. And too often, we put the tradition itself ahead of the words of God and what he actually said in this book. And so we follow the tradition of Christianity without following the law or the heart of God in Christianity. And we've got to go back and ask ourselves, where am I breaking the commands of God in order to follow the traditions of men? Where am I breaking the commands of God in order to follow the traditions of men? And how do I, how do I dig into the word? How do I understand it so that I'm not putting my own traditions ahead of what God asks of me? Which one's more important, the command or the tradition? I'll, I'll, like, I, I, I'm not getting any amens today, so I'm going to get it like, which is more important, the commandments or the traditions? The commands, right? Like, that's what's more important to follow what God actually said, not the traditions that mankind has built around what God said. And we've got to remember, like, when we're talking about people, like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example here. One of the things that we do is we look at someone who has a sinful lifestyle. And we want to tell them about 
how that sinful lifestyle is so bad and wrong. And that sinful lifestyle is part of the command of God, but it also comes with a chain of traditions of men on how we handle it, right? When, if we actually filter through the whole scripture, what God actually tells us to do to that person is to love them. And in loving them, we might get to a point where we tell them about the command of God. But we often, it's our, become our tradition to tell them how bad, how terrible, how wrong they are. And then we tell them, but the good news is God loves you. And what are we doing? We're alienating them from even being able to receive that love because of our own modern tradition that says we have to start pointing out the sin. And Jesus didn't come to the tax collectors and sinners. Notice, notice how Jesus came. Uh, this isn't in the text or in my sermon necessarily. But notice how Jesus came. Jesus came and he loved the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and sinners. The people who were considered outside uh, society. Outcasts in society. And then who did he confront? He confronted the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious people. That's in contrast. What do, what do most churches do today? We preach to all the religious people and tell them how good they are, and we preach against all the bad people out there and all the sinful things that they're doing. We've got it backwards. Jesus actually would be correcting us, challenging us, and then loving on them. And it doesn't mean that we ignore the commands of God, because the commands of God still stand, but we've made a tradition, a Christian tradition, that yells out the sin first and calls out the sin first. When we are supposed to, it says in the book of Romans that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. But how do we do it? We walk up to people and we're going to try and get somebody saved. And what do we do? Hey, did you know that you're a lying, stealing, cheating, and deserve hell? Right? And we're like, good news though. Jesus came to save you of your sins. And it's like we have to, we actually start with the sin and we convince them that they're sinful in order to show them the good Messiah. When we should actually been, be revealing Jesus to them. And if we reveal Jesus to them and it, let them experience the presence of God, their sin's going to get exposed. But we start the process backwards. We've inverted the process. And we've made our traditions of how we quote-unquote get someone saved more important than the command of God. And the command of God is to what? Love. The command of God is to love. Chapter 16. This is such a powerful passage. Chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? This is a question we've got to ask ourselves. Again, we've been asking ourselves, wrestling with a lot of these different questions of Jesus today. But he says, who do other people say the Son of Man is? Now, who do you say 
I am. And this is powerful because it takes it from the just generalizations and people are like, oh, he's the prophet Elijah. And what do people say about Jesus in our day? Oh, he was a good man. He had some great teachings. Some people believe he was a prophet, depending on their religious background, right? But they, it doesn't mean anything to them. It's like, oh, Jesus is a historical figure. If Jesus is just a historical figure, there's no power to change your life. But as soon as you answer this question, when Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Your answer to this changes everything. This changes your future. This changes your destiny. If you can't answer this question properly, this could be the difference between heaven or hell for us. Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say I am? He wanted to know what the hearsay was, but in the end, he narrows it down and he points at us and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter here has got a revelation. He says, you are Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the confession we all need to make. That's the realization that we all need to personally come to. We don't get to ride on mommy and daddy's coattails. We don't get, you don't get to, he to heaven, we could say, any other way. You don't get that relationship with the Father any other way except through Jesus and acknowledgement that he is Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said that there is no other way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's the way. Simon Peter got a revelation of, of who Jesus was. And Jesus looks at him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. This was a revelation. Peter got a revelation of who Jesus was. And I'm, like, I'm boggled by this sometimes. Like I look at this and I'm like, we can say it's relatively easy in our day to believe that Jesus was Messiah. But like, imagine a guy that you're looking in the eyes and you tell him, you're the son of the living God. Like, wouldn't that feel a little bit weird? Like another human being and you're looking them in the face and you're like, it would take something to get that revelation. Like this, like the person I'm talking to right now is the living God incarnate. I don't know fully what that means, but I have become convinced that that's who I'm speaking with. This is the Messiah. This is the son of the living God. That, that is something. And Jesus points out, Simon, you got a revelation, not by man, but by my Father in heaven. And all of us in this room, anybody who listens to this later, you need to have a revelation of this. You need to understand, Jesus is Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. That has to become your why. That has to become a revelation to you, and not just a saying Jesus is asking you today, what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? We could say this is the moment where Peter actually got saved. You know what I mean? 
And I'm talking to a bunch of people in this room who have probably already confessed Jesus as their Messiah. So this isn't like, I'm not going to turn this into some altar call or say, all right, with every head bowed and every eye. Like, this isn't what that moment is. This is a recapitulation. Like, this is you coming to that understanding again and getting a fresh revelation of Jesus and who he is to you. Not what other people say, not what your mom and dad say, not what your pastor up here even says. This has got to be a revelation that you know and understand. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that changes my life. That changes my future, my destiny. It changes who I can become. And if you will come to that understanding, if you will pursue a deeper revelation of that understanding, Jesus will look at you and he will call you blessed. It's relational. And the passage goes on a little bit. We'll skip down to verse 26. Jesus asks the question, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What good is it? What good is it? Too often we exchange this world for Jesus. What can you give in exchange for your soul? How much money can you give? How much time can you give? How much fame can you give? There's nothing worse. There's nothing worth your soul, your future, your destiny. Like if we even just put time on it, right? Everybody in this room, we believe we're eternal beings. If you're an eternal being, you're trading 70 years of this life in this world for eons of your future. A little bit of fame, a little bit of money, a little bit of peace of mind, a little bit like you're trading what this world can offer you right now in its limited scope for eternity. When you put it in those terms, that's crazy. Like what wouldn't what wouldn't you give up for eternity? For the well-being of your soul for eternity. It's like 70 years, that's nothing. Scripture says in Psalms, like that's, that's just a mist, a vapor. Compared to the eternal quality of your life and your future, your destiny. And we just, we want to trade it for money, sex, drugs. We want to trade it for a little bit of fame. We want to trade it for a nice house with a white picket fence and call it the American dream. We want to trade it for all of these tiny temporal things that on the scale of eternity won't mean anything. It doesn't profit us anything except the short term. It's very short term. It might feel good in the short term. But it's not going to do you any good in the long term. So, I'm going to wind this down. We haven't covered all the questions in Matthew, sorry. 
I feel like I went really fast, but I also like went really slow in a couple. There's one that's funny in chapter 20. Jesus, it's in the middle of a parable, so it's like out of context, but it, it's a question of Jesus. It'd be in red letters. It says, why have you been standing all day, here all day long doing nothing? <laughs> like, why have you been standing around all day doing nothing? That's a good question, Jesus. I don't know. I'm lazy. Um, that's supposed to be a joke, but... It's like, wow, the pastor's called himself lazy. Chapter 21, verses 24 and 25. Jesus is kind of in a debate with the Pharisees a little bit. And they ask him, him a question. And instead of replying, he asks them a question. And I always love this tactic because... Too often, you feel the need to explain yourself, or like if you're asked a question, you have to give an answer. But you don't owe anybody an answer or an explanation for anything when it comes down to it. You don't owe, just because someone asked you a question, you don't owe them an answer. And in fact, sometimes they need to go dig it out or search it out themselves, and that's the better response. And they had come and they had asked Jesus by what authority he was doing what he was doing. And Jesus said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you one question. And if you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He said, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from human origin? And suddenly they were trapped. Right? Unlike Jesus who didn't get trapped earlier like we talked about, they got trapped because why? Because they were concerned about the crowds. Jesus was concerned about pleasing his Father in heaven. They were concerned about the crowds and keeping the people happy. And so they knew if they answered and said John's baptism was of men, that the crowd would be angry. But if they said that John's baptism was from heaven then Jesus was right, and they should have listened to him. So now they're trapped. Why? They're trapped because of the crowds. And so often in our lives, we get trapped because of the crowd. We get trapped because we care too much about what other people think. When our main concern, our primary concern, should be just like Jesus, we are concerned about what does the Father think? What does he want? What does he care about? And so we have to discern. We have to ask ourselves, from heaven or from human origin, you have to discern the difference. You have to look at pastors and ministry leaders. You have to look at other people's lives and, be, and determine, is this something that they're just doing on their own effort? Is this of human origin or is this of God? And if it's of God, then I should follow it. I th should throw my life into it. I should pursue it. Not everything out there is of God. And it takes discernment to perceive and then pursue. So was it from heaven or of human origin? Is what's going on in t today in this room from heaven or human origin? Is Jesus' questions to you today 
Are they questions that are dealing with your soul, with heaven, with your future and your destiny? Or are they just human questions? If they're human questions, then you should answer them just like you do on a test. And you should circle A, B, C, or D. But if they're of heavenly origin, if they have weight for your soul, for your future, if they can affect your life, then you need to wrestle these out. You need to kind of go into essay form a little bit and pursue a little bit and go a little bit deeper beyond just this sermon. Because I can, I can, you could say only spoon feed you so much. And Jesus questions, so many of these questions are life questions. They're deep questions and they concern us eternally. And we've got to discern We've got to wrestle. And so my guess is that there's like two or three of the questions today that hit you pretty hard. And there's some that maybe not, to, maybe not today. Maybe that's for another time. But every single one of you in this room, you need to go back. You need to ask yourself these questions and wrestle through these questions. Do you have the same answer that Peter had? The same answer that John and Andrew had? Can you answer definitively? Yes, you are Messiah, the son of the living God, and that's going to affect my life forever. I'm going to start living like it. Have you understood these things? There's another question that Jesus asks. It's his most frequent question in the Gospel of Matthew. Four different times he asks, what do you think? What do you think? And most of the time he's talking to his disciples or to the crowds. This is the question we're going to end on today. What do you think? Because so often in Christianity, we made it only about our soul and our destiny in heaven. We've made it about our heart posture. But Jesus also cares about what you think. What goes through your head? He wants to save you, body, soul, spirit, and mind, right? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mind is in there. Your mind gets renewed day by day. What we think also affects us. And so today, that's the question we're going to end on. What do you think? What do you think about all of this? Do you understand all of these things? Who do you say Jesus is? Would you stand with me? As we close, I want you to do your best to just enter in to the Spirit of God. You may not even fully know what that means, but in the book of Revelation, John describes an experience he had, and he says, On the first day of the week, or on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And then this happened and he explains the vision that he had. 
And this wasn't something just special for John. This is something that all of us can do. We can be in the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And so these words today that I read and spoke over us, they're true words, but they need to become words that are alive to us. And it's the Holy Spirit that activates it. It's the Holy Spirit that makes it come alive. And today was a barrage of questions. And guess what? I got more for you next week. But my hope is that two or three of them really stood out to you. And I just have this sense that we need to take a few moments and quiet ourselves before the Lord. Do your best to, like, to, as I said, enter the Spirit. And I'm just going to read off some of the questions that we went over today. I'm just going to, I'm not going to explain them. I'm not going to talk about them again. Though the pastor in me is going to want to. And I want you to just let the question hit you like a wave. Each one. And ask, say, Holy Spirit, is this the question I need to wrestle with? Is this the question I need? Which, which one of these questions do I need to wrestle with this week? And maybe for you, there's just one of them that's going to catch your attention. But let's do this. Let's enter in and let's ask the Holy Spirit, which question do I need to answer today? So Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Isn't life more than food? Or clothes? Why do you worry? Why do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, while all along there's a plank in your own? Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A prophet? Someone in fine clothes? To what can I compare this generation? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Have you understood all these things? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Are you still so dull? Who do people say the Son of Man is? But what about you? Who do you say I am? What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Is it from heaven or human origin? What do you think? What do you think? There's another question he asks his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. He says, what do you want? 
what do you want? And they had a just outrageous question. They said, we want to sit on your throne. We want to sit on your right and your left. Today, maybe as you're wrestling through these questions, you need to come up with answers. But what if you also asked God your own question and told him, what do you want? What do you want? And maybe you need some peace. Maybe you need some faith. Maybe you need some finances. Maybe you need some joy in your life. And Jesus is asking, what do you want? And it sounds like it's not even all that crazy to ask, can we sit on your throne right and left? What? I get to be seated in heavenly places? What do you want this morning? Jesus is asking us a question. What do you want? So Lord, today we present ourselves to you. Help us this week to wrestle through these questions and answers. Help us not to worry. Help us not to doubt. Help us to build our strength. Help us to build our discernment. Help us answer your questions by becoming the answers and living the answers. Reveal to us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church.